Welcome to Rise with Hope, Hope Sheds Light's weekly podcast. Join us as we tackle the real issues, share actual stories, offer a little strength, and provide a whole lot of hope to families and our loved ones impacted by addiction. This is Pam from Hope Sheds Light, and welcome to Rise with Hope. I'm sitting here today with Heather Price. She's a very good friend of mine. She also works at Hope Sheds Light. But today we're here to talk to her a little bit about her experience in her recovery journey and what it's like in particular to be a mom in early recovery and how that's played out for you. So welcome, Heather. Please um, just share with our audience a little bit about your history so we get a sense of who you are. Great. Good morning, Pam. Thank you so much for having me be a part of this um, podcast. And um, I am the volunteer and outreach coordinator for Hope Sheds Light. I'm also a person in long-term recovery. And what that means um, to me is that I haven't had a drink or a drug since um, May 7th, 2017. And um, that particular day means a lot to me. Um, I uh, struggled with addiction for the past 10 years and, um, you know, it was due to um, having involvement with uh, DCPMP in my life. Um, Can you just tell our audience what's DCPMP? Because we, we're not limited to just New Jersey with our course. Mm-hmm. So it is the Department of Children um, and Families. And um, this particular um, one was located in Monmouth County. And um, I also had had my last one. I was pretty done with um, active addiction. I had caused a lot of pain and a lot of harm to um, my two older children who are now 19 and uh, going on 17, I have two boys, and my daughter is going on eight this month. And um, I was beaten and I was broken. And um, I think that, you know, with having DCPMP involved once again in my life, um, I knew that it was time for me to change. Okay. I'm going to, so DCPMP, the big bad initials that everybody's afraid of, um, technically it stands for the, the Department of Children and Child Protective Services, I believe, or something like that. Yes. Um, yes. So um, I know so many people who, that like those letters uh, strike the fear in your heart and oftentimes can prevent you literally from reaching out for help because you you try to keep them away from your life did you spend a period of time in active addiction consciously aware that maybe you needed some help but were afraid to reach out for help because of you know the stigma related to dcpmp Absolutely. I can give you several experiences that I had um, with the Child Protective Services in California. Mm -hmm. Um, I left uh, California in 2014 in December, and um, I had some involvement there as well. And my first initial reaction to that is to run because of fear of having my children removed from me. And a legitimate knowing, fear, by the way. Absolutely. Legit fear. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And knowing that um, I did have a problem, but not sure what to do or how to get help. Um, and also to admit it to myself, you know, 
Um, so when I had the first involvement in California, I had come here in 2014, like I stated, and um, quickly got that case closed. However, it wasn't until another year after that that I had gotten a DUI, mm -hmm. and I had had them involved in my life again. Here in New Jersey? In or New Jersey, yeah. in Monmouth mm -hmm. County. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember them asking me if I had ever gotten a DUI before, and I said no. You know, not thinking that they have my records on file <laughs> and, um, you know, still trying to cover up, you know, my addiction. I was still trying to cover up the fact that I had a problem because I didn't want my daughter taken away from me. Mm -hmm. I had just moved here, you know, a year prior to try and start my life again over after probably the fifth time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know... Of course, you know, they knew that I had gotten the DUI, so I was, you know, mandated to go to an IOP program. And um, when I went into the IOP program, I did really well, you know, I didn't use, um, I was just uh, abstinent from drugs and alcohol. Um, I was a little willing to go into a fellowship, so I would pop in here and there and go, mm -hmm. but uh was Maddie with you during the IOP period? She was. She so you was. had DC, let me, just for me and for the audience, you had DCP involvement, you were given options, and Maddie was still with you. Correct. Okay. Just, Correct. Mm -hmm. And I had to follow those guidelines that they put in front of me, complete the IOP, and once um, IOP was completed, then they would close the case. Mm -hmm. and, and that is exactly what had happened. But during that time, I wasn't really given you know, a place to really go. There wasn't too much therapy for Madison. Um, I was still a, a mess. Right. And I, again, I'm so I'm trying hard to balance not villainizing the state or you, you know, because what we're here to do is talk about the real stories to raise awareness um, and lift your voice up out of this area of shame and fear so that others listening might understand and other states may and our own state may listen and understand. So with the best of intentions, um, through that limited lens of, a, of our treatment model, the state's like, okay, here's the support we're going to provide you. Go to treatment and finish it, and you're going to be okay. But it lacked, it lacked a, a, a real understanding of what recovery support services look like so if i'm hearing you correctly that is correct mm -hmm. and um it wasn't until i had gotten clean uh the very last time um in 2017 that that changed for me um i had one of the best caseworkers i probably could have ever had and yay monmouth um, county dcp and just yes. saying <laughs> and um you know that process was um, very bittersweet. So there were some things that I had to do. I had to, one, I had to go to treatment. So I had gotten clean and in, um, at 18 days, I had went into a treatment facility. And when I came out, um, I was quickly um, hooked up to a caseworker for about a month or two, and then that switched. It switched over to a new caseworker. So this was this gentleman's very first case he had ever had. Mm -hmm. and. Um, he was so fantastic. He he supported me from the beginning to the end. And um, what that looked like was that he was always checking in to see how I was doing, what he could do for me. 
um, what he could do to help me have a relationship that bettered with my parents who were fostering my daughter Madison at the time. Um, I had lost custody of her to the state um, my last run. Mm -hmm. So he showed up, um, he advocated for me, you know, um, in ways that even um, at the time I was a, a vegetarian, that he, he told my parents like I was, you know, not starving my daughter at my Oxford house that I was living in. <laughs> and uh, he really supported me. Um, I had such a great experience with them. And all of my thoughts of what having involvement with the Department of uh, Children and Families was quickly turned into what it could be, as long as I was willing to also follow the guidelines and protocols that they put in front of me, which meant I did have to, you know, go to treatment. Um, it was suggested that I move into an Oxford house. Uh, it, so that way I wasn't moving back into my parents' house. I also wasn't allowed to move back in. Right. So um, they had some protocols that they had to follow too while they were fostering Madison. And um, every court date I was able to get to, they provided me with bus fare um, because at that time I wasn't driving. So I was traveling from Manahawkin to Freehold on the bus to get to court. And um, he also would come to my Oxford house weekly just to check in with me to see how I was doing. Um, they provided Madison with some play therapy during that time. And uh, at the end of it, last year, I was awarded, I believe it was last June, um, he chose me to um, present a certificate to. I was one of the people who were awarded that for reunification day throughout the state of New Jersey um, from my DCPMP caseworker. <clears throat> That's great. Because I mean, of my experience. so what sounds really nice here in this story is that you were blessed with a invested, caring, non-judgmental support system through the state, through your family, although I know maybe initially it didn't feel non-judgmental. Um, and you had a willingness, because I hear that you you um, understood that there was a reason why there needed to be and what might feel like an intrusion in your life, an, an outside hand telling you how to function um, for the safety of Madison at the time. And it sounds like you're not pushing back against that, the reality of that. I completely <clears throat> agree with that because mm. of the fact that like... Um, I was done. I wanted, I wanted recovery. I wanted to do whatever it took for me to get to a point of freedom from active addiction. Mm -hmm. I also knew how much harm I was causing my children. Right. And, um, that I could no longer move into, um, you know, the later years of my life living the way I lived like others have in active addiction. Um, I wanted to be a good mother. I wanted to be a good daughter and friend and, so I followed whatever was set in front of me um, as far as, um, you know, the guidelines and protocols that they said I had to do. I had to, once I came out of treatment too, I had to go into IOP. And of course that initial um, 
thought was, oh, I have to do IOP. I just completed treatment. I go to meetings. I mean, just for our listeners to understand, IOP is intensive outpatient. So she's inpatient for 30 days or 28 days. Then she's recommended, you know, to go to outpatient for another however long, two, three months. I'm not sure. It was uh, three months. Three months, which is, a, you know, three times a week minimum. And Oxford, for those of you who don't know, she's living in a, in a home with other recovering women in, in not, you know, in a single family home, but almost like a boarding house setting. Sometimes you don't have your own room. Oftentimes you're sharing with, you know, another person. And so you're still, you know, post, you're still, you know, giving up a whole lot of freedom, moving towards learning new behaviors and accessing new support systems all the time, you know, you're trying to manage reunifying with your daughter. So a very, very, very heavy lift for, you know, I say moms, but really single parents who have custody of their children who are, you know, in the stage of early recovery um, from a disease that, you know, there, there's a lot of stigma associated with it. So, so courageous of you to share that piece of your story because it's one of the more sensitive areas. What if you um, could, if you were speaking to an audience full of um, de- Department of Children and Family social workers, what is it that your your social worker had that sometimes we don't see in other social workers within the division? He listened. Really nice. He listened, and he knew um, that addiction was a disease and that I didn't purposely try to harm my daughter um, or my boys and that I needed some guidance and help and support. So he was there to do that. So non-judgmental listening. Correct. Letting you guide your, you know, recovery journey as much as possible, where possible. And what for the, the next mom who's out there needing help, afraid of help, because they're afraid of that step that they have to take that lets go of some of the control of the of their child's life. What do you say to them? To be brave, to have courage, and to have hope and faith, because I didn't want to be separated from her, but I knew it was the best thing for me and for where I am today. If I didn't have those first nine months in order to get a good foundation of recovery. And that meant taking care of me and learning how to live life on life's terms, learning how to cope with things, um, to find yourself some support through that process too. And for me, that meant attending also a 12-step fellowship and, and getting a sponsor and to be open and honest about how I felt about things to uh, my community. So I could have that support along the way. Mm-hmm. It's that first step of letting go of control, right? Yes. Um, being powerless over that particular situation. That's the 12-step model. Um, so fast forward, I know you today to this incredible spiritual human being who's working a healthy recovery plan. And you came to Hope Sheds Light um, to make things better for other people. So you, you, you know, you stepped outside of what your immediate needs are and thought, at least from my lens, how do I help others? And what's it mean for you to be working at Hope Shuts Light? 
Well, I have so much passion for the organization. I remember um, when, you know, Hope Sheds Light had helped me when I had reunification with my daughter. And um, coming from a background where I worked in medical billing for 20 years, I didn't, you know, really know what it looked like to work in the field. Um, and when I began to, you know, see how many people were affected by the disease of addiction, how many people have lost loved ones to the disease, um, it filled my heart up to give away the experience that I have. I'm not only a mother, um, but I'm also a daughter to a father who had substance use disorder, an aunt, an uncle, and another aunt. I'm a family member too, and I have experienced quite a bit in my life um, due to loss of a loved one, um, being, um, you know, a person with substance use disorder as well. And to give back my experience, to, to share with others what was really given to me and um, to provide them with hope that, you know, we do recover and we can live a fulfilling life. And, and I do. I live that fulfilling life by um, working with the people I work with at Hope Sheds Light um, and with the community and the individuals that we serve. Oh, that's great. So you do know, because you were one of the volunteers, that we started Rise with Hope during the COVID pandemic as a daily way to reach out to our audience and share our uh, self-help strategies because we were all kind of unraveling yes. and needed <laughs> needed additional support. And we realized, oh, maybe some of the people that we help need to hear from us in a different way. So I like to wrap up my podcast interviews with asking my the people here, my interviewee, um, what is a self-care strategy that you can share with us, a takeaway for our audience, um, something you do, you know, on a regular basis? Um, on a regular basis, I uh, practice prayer and meditation daily, several times a day. And uh, weekly, I do some self-care by practicing yoga. I also am very mindful about... Um, pausing, praying, and proceeding. That's part of my self-care practices on a daily basis. Um, so pause, pray, proceed. Just a quick, because that's an, a really great um, skill that people can carry with them anywhere. Can you just give us a two-second kind of what's pause, pray, proceed? So I um, pause if I get a little bit of anxiety or maybe frustration or insecurity. Um, I say the serenity prayer. And then I proceed on. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, Heather, it's been awesome speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time in your day to come visit me here. Um, so for those of you listening to us, that was Heather Price. Uh, thank you for joining us. This is Rise With Hope. Again, we have um, an email address. It's rise at hopeshedslight.org. We really, really want to hear from you. We'd like to um, read your questions or comments or suggestions, advice out loud during our podcast interviews for our audience. So please make sure you send me an email. I want to hear from you. This needs to be real. We want this grassroots. We want it real. Uh, we might not have the answers, but we need to at least be asking the right questions. Rise at hopeshedslight.org. Thank you for joining me. If you'd like to support Hope Sheds Light, you can visit us at hopeshedslight.org and join our circle of hope. Remember, we want to hear from you. Share your stories with us. 
You can reach us at rise at hopeshedslight.org. Till next time.